Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast, the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and environmental issues. We talk about our feelings, we talk about our emotions, we talk about our private lives, our relationships, our families. Um, and uh, today we're very excited to have a guest with us. My name is Erica Berry, and I'm a writer and teacher based in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. My first book, Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear, was recently released in the U.S. and the U.K. Yes, and I'm very uh, um, lucky to share a hometown with Erica, and I've got a chance to meet Erica and do some um, really nice conversations and some walking with her in the forest, which recently turned into a, a story that Erica did for Outside Magazine. Um, so really glad to have her here. and. A lot of neat themes. Erica's writing is, I highly recommend. And she writes about relationships and gender and being a woman and the wilderness and about wolves and all kinds of things that are close to our hearts. Um, and Panu, of course, coming from Finland, has a lot of connections with wolves and the wilderness and from the Northern European context. So Anna, do you want to get us started with this conversation today? Mm -hmm. Warmly welcome, Erika. Also on my behalf, delighted to meet you. And as Thomas hinted, uh, wolves are a hot topic in Finland also. And we have a very limited number of them. And no other predator uh, encounters as much hatred uh, as the wolves do in, in Finland. And I'm taking part in some research projects where we try to understand this better also from a more humanistic and critical theory view viewpoint and feminist perspectives are one part of them. But um, before going in, into that, would you like to share something, Erika, about your journey towards this subject matter altogether, you know, emotions and our relations with the modern human world? Mm, thank you. Um, I think that now I realize that I became sort of interested in wolves, both real and symbolic, around the same time. And I think it came from this sort of larger coming-of-age question of how do what are the stories we tell about the things that scare us and how do we live with that uncertainty? And I suppose I was always an anxious child in a sense, but also one very full of curiosity and wonder. And I think, you know, a young wolf is born afraid. And I recently was talking to a biologist who said, if a wolf hears something under a tree, they might be afraid, but they'll go investigate it. And I think, you know, I was very lucky to have that sort of childhood where I was like pushing out and wandering around in the forest. And my grandparents both live rurally. And so spent a lot of time in those spaces and cared for them sort of deeply and felt um, personally kind of my own sense of calm or peace that I found there was what was at threat. 
as sort of wildfires would come or these other sort of environmental um, things that then brought me anxiety. And so, you know, I think this question, when I started thinking about the presence of the wolf, both in our landscape and in our psyches, it felt like a more personal one where I was trying to reconcile um, a sort of hypervigilance that had come over me. And I feel like that was both environmental quite anxious about climate change and uh, felt very like swamped with a sort of grief about that. And at the same time, um, in day-to-day human interactions, I had had some experiences uh, as a woman that had made me pretty unsure how to move my body through the world. And that sense of uh, uncertainty, I couldn't, I didn't know the limits of it either in my body or sort of externally. And so became so many of the stories about the wolf and these sort of idioms about the wolf we've inherited, this idea of the wolf at the door or um, the throughout different countries, there's different stories that parents would tell their children or mm-hmm. um, that are basically about, here's what the wolf has to tell us about how to stay alive, how to survive. And I became interested in those those stories because I felt so afraid for my life and the people around me somewhat irrationally um, in a sort of hypervigilant sense. Um, and yeah, so I guess anxiety and wonder were sort of two doors that led me to this. Anxiety and wonder, two doors. That's great. Um, yeah, so many things we could talk about today. Uh, before our, our conversation formally started, we were brainstorming about all the different directions we could go and wolves have such a deep, you know, uh, mythical, historic uh, of uh, story, particularly in Northern European, Anglo and Celtic and Finnish cultures and things like that. Um, one of the things that came up with us, Erica, was just, and I think you speak of, of this really eloquently, kind of knowing, I don't know, treading the difference or knowing the difference between our own personal feelings and these global things. And, you know, that's one of the things I think comes up at ecotherapy, kind of like the capital I issues, like the big things we're working on and the lowercase I issues, you know, you seem to have insights about that. Do you, what would you say a little bit more about that? Like, it's almost like a chicken and egg thing. What came first, my own temperamental anxiety or climate anxiety? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think at some point when the sort of modern conception of what to do if you're afraid is to grow out of your fears. That was what Mm. I thought. That was, I felt like what the self-help books were telling me, but I was more interested in how we grow into those fears and the idea that, um, we inherit and are sort of sold these narratives often benefiting someone or an institution or something in power. And often also there's a a cost of carrying that, those narratives. And so I began to sort of question, you know, thinking of my brain as this vessel that had been filled with things without my sort of wanting to growing up, you just, you inherit sort of imbibe these narratives and picking each of them up and sort of questioning them. And I think, for example, with the wolf, I was thinking like, when did this idea of the wolf and the sort of violent man, this metaphor, there's a conflation there. And when did that start? And I sort of was looking linguistically and you have in ancient Norse, Sanskrit, Russian, Iranian, there are words for wolf that are also the words for robber or evildoer. And so you have these sort of legacies, even in the very language that go back so far. And I became interested then in, you know, I think my personal interaction, I didn't feel afraid of wolves when I was hiking, but I was thinking about the relationship between if I'm a woman walking alone, um, 
you know, my grandfather's farm, there has been a cougar that was, you'll sort of, sometimes you're walking and it's the cougar prints are in your prints afterwards, you know? And I was thinking about that feeling of being um, in a space sort of intimately with a wild predator. Um, And then my experiences, you know, I'd had an experience on the sidewalk where I'd been uh, grabbed by a stranger I didn't know. And um, that rewired my experience of walking through these sort of city landscapes. And I, at the same time, was very aware that I'd inherited this sort of Little Red Riding Hood story that told me I would be attacked there and um, told me that to be a young woman is to potentially, you know, be prey. And I was really uncomfortable with that narrative. So I feel like at a certain time, I would sort of try to talk myself out of it on a very internal level, but ultimately realize, well, I have to like take apart the wiring of these social narratives um, that both do say who can be predator, who can be prey, uh, what it means to exist in those spaces. I didn't trust them. Um, and I would say that, you know, this work is a balance of asking yourself these internal questions. When am I holding something? What am I sort of reacting to and trusting those gut instincts, but also felt like my gut instincts were sort of shaped by a world that had a lot of prejudice and I didn't really trust my gut instincts. And I don't know, I guess that, you know, maybe this comes up in the sort of therapy mm-hmm. world. Like I felt like when it came to fear, I didn't trust what I should be afraid of because the stories that told me that seemed sort of bunk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say one thing and then I'll turn it over to Panu, but I, I do think that one thing that does happen in therapy paradoxically is that pe- we learn not to trust our gut. Mm-hmm. Are we learn to we learn to test our gut because we think we think you know the proverbial wisdom is always trust your gut. But if you but if you had some negative wiring uh, through your family or a lot of people just have no understanding of animals and other mm-hmm. species, they it's all it's all just abstract because they didn't grow up around wolves or coyotes or anything. And so there's a whole environmental identity piece. Um, so some of our gut instincts are totally actually mm-hmm. wrong. And we have to let them go and re- rewire. So I'm curious about how to sort of refine that instinct. You know, I feel like going back to some of these these sort of archetypal or old stories, I felt like I was trying to like excavate what are my sort of gut self-protective instincts that aren't going to be harmful or rooted in um, a mis- misapprehension. I guess that's just a larger, you know, the larger question or work is figuring out those instincts. Very inspiring and fascinating and I find this very very important also. The price of curiosity is anxiety mm-hmm. would be a sort of paraphrasing of some of the work that Joanna Macy and others do at, at this work that reconnects thing and that was a helpful lesson for me sometime you know uh, realizing that even though anxiety and worry and fear about what's going on in the world can be painful but it's also a sort of necessity if you want to keep your sense of curiosity and wonder uh, alive so it's just uh, echoing and commenting on some of the mm. things you said quite quite early. There's a great book by a woman therapist, Miriam Greenspan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mentioned this at some very early episode called Healing Through the Dark Emotions, the Wisdom of Grief, Fear and Despair. And I find myself thinking a lot about that book when listening, listening to you. And 
book about this so-called negative emotions, which are not negative in the value-laden sense. And sometimes one hears phrases like, we should be fearless in the face of climate crisis, for example. And I'm, well, I partly understand what you mean, but that's not the whole point. We should be courageous and, you know, learn to feel fear roughly the right amount at the right place. So the wisdom in fear is one of the themes that Greenspan very eloquently explores. And her book also features much of the discussion about this troubling power dynamics where women and the modern human world often end up suffering from sort of toxic forms of male, male aggression. So that's something I wanted to bring up. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this question of how to dose fear, uh, both in myself and then sort of imagining, I, I don't have children, but I was thinking about the stories I'd inherited as a child and um, the children I work with or teach, or if I do have children, like what are the stories that you give them to, to sort of the right amount of fear to stay alive or to, to thrive, but also not to make your world too small, right? And I think that does tie um, to wolves, right? We need to have some, both wolves but wolves need to feel some fear of humans, just like humans need to feel some fear of wolves. And like that fear can be some respect and maybe it's not fear of attack, but like what is, where is reverence and awe tip into fear? And, you know, I think that's true too. Um, socially, I was very resistant to relating to sort of Little Red Riding Hood narrative growing up as a teenager. Like I really did not want to be this idea of the victim. And I think only later when I'd sort of had some of these encounters, did I realize that I needed to have some fear, actually. I'd tried to live completely fearlessly, and I'd sort of grown up in this very sort of empowered girl power um, era of the the late 90s. And actually, I needed to like rewire some of that. And I, I do think there's a crossover. I mean, I think that the threat that a, an animal and a human poses are totally different. And wolves and, you know, I need to say that, like, I, I don't think um, there's a great quote about by Jeffrey Musaif Masson, is he? He's yeah. Says something like the cruelty that uh, a predator does. It's not cruelty what a predator does to a prey animal, right? It's instinct, and that's why metaphors about wolves will fall flat, right? At the same time, there is something about learning to walk among other bodies that you don't know what they will do and you can't anticipate. That is true we're just animals and, you know, we're an animal among animals. And I feel like part of my work into fear has just been thinking about the fear responses on an animal level. And I, I talked to a biologist who said, you know, fear is not an emotion in my lab. It's a set of responses, sort of like these dominoes that affect our behavior and a plant will be a different plant after it experiences a chronic stress and an animal will too, and a person will. And it was sort of helpful for me to rationalize like, oh, this is on a biological level. I've experienced something and that's changing my body. And I can talk to that, but I guess the relationship between our sort of biological and um, psychological sort of conceptions of fear. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just searching for a quote as we were talking that I gathered recently uh, from Pema Chodron about uh, fear is a natural reaction of moving closer to the truth. Mm. One of her quotes. And so uh, all of this has a meta level of uh, climate change and societally we're working out what our dosing our fear. So that we don't even really have to get into that too much, but that's a backdrop for a lot of our, our talk today is climate change. Well, and I think realizing that fear, I at some point realized like 
being afraid is being in love with things, right? The more afraid I am is the more I don't want to lose something. I felt most sort of afraid of flying on airplanes when I was working on this book project and I really wanted to finish it. (laughs) And for some reason Mm -hmm. that made me like, I can't, I'd never really felt afraid of flying and I felt um, extra that sense of protectiveness. And so understanding that they're sort of opposite on the color wheel of love and fear and same with grief and, you know, yeah, that very much ties to climate and sort of investing in the world around you or recognizing the environmental world is tied to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, great, great stuff. And also guilt, I think. So Mm. it's interesting that many of these very common climate emotions and eco emotions, they have their base basis in, in love, love and care actually, or our deepest values, you you know, wanting to have something very important done uh, echoing what you say about finishing the book. And Mm -hmm. I've had the same feeling sometimes when working for a very long time with the book or a long, long article. And it's like, I need to get this, get this finished. And that ties with sort of very deep themes around what might be called death anxiety of wrestling with knowledge of mortality. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed over the years also that I don't have very high levels of death anxiety, but when those when you are in those kinds of situations where you would, you would like something to happen, that's a slight increase in at least my my death anxiety. It doesn't limit my everyday fun- functioning, but it's speaks i think to this dynamic we are with with here now and that's again one topic i think very closely related to wolves Mm -hmm. as as you have hinted yourself when i was doing the ecotherapy sessions to write about for the magazine with thomas he mentioned like that idea of playing out sort of this worst case scenario or like sitting with that and i've thought about that a lot since and sort of the the word fear has roots in this, uh, the Latin word for ambush mm. and this idea that we fear the thing that we can't anticipate. And I've thought a lot, you know, like worry becomes a form of um, sort of a prayer for something to happen, right? It's a, it's a fantasy p- place in a way. You're living in a projection and what can sort of be defanged by just living it through, going there, imagining it, as you say, the death, the attack, the something, and then sort of sitting with that and, okay, I've played it out and now maybe I'm sort of free of it. And um, yeah, I guess I've thought about that in different contexts since since our walk. Yeah, as people are listening out, out there, our listeners, just a lot of things we're touching on, I think, um, just to kind of ground us in a kind of a map of what we're talking about. Um, I mean, some of some of what uh, we're talking about is just personal our how our nervous systems work right and so our nervous systems get used to being a certain way and we get afraid of things and we we want to avoid them and so what erica was just talking about is kind of what therapists would call exposure you know graduated exposure where we kind of bring these things into our minds and sit with them and then allows our body to our heart rate to settle and our blood pressure to settle and we realize oh okay i can be with this so that's a kind of a therapy a therapy thing. Um, and then it's all, then it's all insight about our, ourselves and how we grew up. Oh, this is how I operate in the world. And one of the things that, that I don't know if that's true for you, Erica, but this it was true for me when I was younger was being counterphobic. So I like, I purposely did things that were scary and pushed myself, um, almost just compulsively, you know, and to get kind of to get away from my family, uh, in a way, cause my mother was quite fearful of the world. 
she was not an outdoors person at all. Uh, and, uh, and she, I'm, she, she, she almost drowned when she was a teenager in the Buffalo river, Niagara river, you know, with her father fishing. And she would always tell us the story of how she almost drowned and, you know, working class Polish family. And, you know, she was all huddled on the bus going home in a blanket. And that was our introduction to water and, and uh, swimming, you know? So for me, it was always, well, I have to jump off a cliff then and get into the water. Um, and then realizing that that's limited too, if that's because we're kind of white knuckling it, we're not actually really living our lives. We're just pushing ourselves into things. Um, but anyway, there's all this great insight and, and Eric, all your writings really are so insightful, but we got the mind body, we've got the therapy and then this whole environmental identity piece too. Uh, cause you grew up, you had some actual familiarity with coyotes and animals. A lot of people, it's totally abstract. So they have no, it's like two cultures. I was, this is a, a bit off track, but I was watching the anniversary of the Iraq invasion um, in the news and talk, people talking about us, the U.S. going into Iraq and just seeing images of these poor National Guard soldiers going around Baghdad and totally being out of their element and such a lack of any understanding of that culture. And then, of course, if you don't understand something, it's, a, it's, a, it's scary. And then if you have a bunch of firearms, you're going to kill it. And so, so much of people not understanding the culture of wolves and, mm-hmm. you know, whereas native people would, would coexist. So there's a whole cultural piece about us not really understanding the ways of animals. Mm-hmm. So cougars or owls or whales, they become oddly, you know, anthrop- anthropomorphized, but you know, all the wildlife biology people in the audience are shaking their hands because, oh, these people don't understand. So there's a lot of levels mm-hmm. just, just to kind of situate us in the conversation. Yeah. My, my relatives, my grandfather had a sheep farm and I think he was also, his brother had been the head of the Sierra Club, a big organization doing mm-hmm. a lot of environmental sort of landmark legislation in the seventies when he was the president. And so I sort of inherited this legacy of conservation and um, thinking about protecting these wild spaces. And at the same time, because he was taking care of sheep and sometimes the sheep would get attacked by the coyote and he would bring them in and have to stitch them up or, you know, we'd be feeding a lamb in the bathtub and, you know, understanding there's a story that he told that I had forgotten where essentially I'd cried wolf on his farm and I'd said, oh, grandpa, there's a wolf here. And I'd been quite afraid. And I don't remember this. I was probably three years old and it was a coyote, but he trapped it and he could hold somehow as a, you know, he was a conservationist and a hiker. And yet also on the farm, he was this tender and he had, he was trapping a coyote. I don't, I tried to ask him about more details and he's passed away now. You know, it was sort of towards the end of his life that he was telling me this story, but he said, you were convinced it was a wolf and you were afraid. And I thought it's because I'd heard so many stories about the wolf being the threat and I loved the lambs in that context. And, you know, that feeling that even I had cried wolf, um, as someone who was very primed to this, um, you know, I think we all cry wolf sometimes when we mean to cry other things, right? Which is, there's an animal here and it's in a trap and it's scared <laughs> and I'm scared. And I don't know what that experience is as a toddler, right? And I don't know, I, I think about so many of the wolf stories that I encountered, um, you know, it's really hard to give language to some of these other emotions. And so we sort of make it animal um, as a way of trying to make it legible to ourselves. Um, but behind that, you know, it's scarier to peel back. Like, what else was I seeing in that moment? I saw and probably an animal that was dying that I, my grandfather was killing. And that's harder for me to confront, you know, to really think about that. 
um, is more, almost more painful. Yeah, yeah, this is profound, profound dis- discussion, and uh, I find myself thinking about vulnerability. Mm. There's of course much dynamics of con- control and, and power, and in this. Uh, discourses about predators and how much they can be hated. Uh, it's difficult not to see elements of so-called human dominion th- thinking, and it's, it's it's a threat when some creatures still can show show some some power. But uh, another theme related to this, which you hinted us hinted at our pre-discussion is scapegoating, which I've been thinking about a lot lately because we've had in Finland one another media attack on Greta Thunberg, the Swedish young climate activists, and the way she's treated is a prime example of what can be called scapegoat ecology. People trying to escape a difficult ethical question where they have some complicity in by attacking the messenger or then, you know, uh, loading an enormous amount of things and emotions and whatever into one one, one creature. And that happens uh, sadly for Greta, but it often seems to happen for wolves also. And then it's quite clear that people are also projecting perhaps hidden parts of themselves into wolves. And this is a very large topic, and I'm really looking forward to reading reading your book. But I still wanted to lift this up, and I think that one of the key elements is sort of together with others accepting vulnerability. Which is basically what you do when when you hike. There is that element, but then if you are real about it, it's much more dangerous to go driving in a car than it is to go walking in the in the in the forest in relation to predators, for for example. I love that, and I think uh, you know it makes me think of a line uh, Thomas from the paper that you'd shared. Thomas had worked on a paper about. Um, carnivore sort of the actual risks of predation and saying that like in a world where we are living beside these creatures we have to take some responsibility which is maybe supervise some young children or our dogs or be sort of mindful when we're walking or biking and that is implying not that we think we will be attacked but that we understand that we're sharing the land right Mm -hmm. and having to act in different ways and I think that we're sort of resistant to that idea in this very anthropomorphic, like I am the one in control of this space. I should be able to run or jog or do whatever I want here without this encroachment. And at the same time, I think as a woman, I've been doing that for so long. Like, of course, I'm not going to run in certain places. And, you know, it's been interesting with the book out, I get emails from men who say, oh, I've never really thought about this. I I, I hike everywhere and I love hiking and I, I never thought about the ways that you wouldn't hike somewhere. And I'm thinking like, really? This has always been part of my experience. And so many um, people, you know, may, there is a relationship there again with how do we uh, be mindful of our vulnerability and also the power. You know, I, I've studied mother wolves at one point, stories about mother wolves and the idea that they're so fierce and they can be the fiercest sort of, um, they have so much to, the stakes are high, right? So much to protect. And yet also there's this vulnerability and the ferocity are intertwined in ways that we don't always culturally see, right? We see them as two separate things, but in fact, um, yeah, there's, there's an intimate link there. Yeah. So many levels of awareness, you know. Yeah, men, uh, men just being aware, not even being aware that they are the alpha. They are the alpha predator typically, so they don't have to worry about anything. And then, even if you're not, when you're a young man, being killed by an animal is a glorious way to die. So, why not? There's no loss either either way. Uh, uh, but uh, 
uh, in our last part, Eric, you've hinted at this already with with some of the letters you've gotten. But you know, you've been traveling the, the country, I guess, uh, sharing this really interesting book, right? Which is going to pull on city people and pull on rural people and bring in young women, perhaps that are building their ability to go on a solo hike Mm -hmm. and then bringing in uh, ranchers or environmentalists and just, or even just city people who are just curious about this. So what are any interesting Mm -hmm. anecdotes or just insights you've got after doing these public talks and seeing people? I'm curious what people come up to you and say and do. It was really interesting because I just had a call with one of the ranchers who I talked to in the book and, um, he he left me a message and he said, I'm halfway through your book and it's very sociological. Uh, it's not just about real wolves, which I sort of tried to explain, but it is a bit, it's a, it's a tricky concept um, of a book to explain to people. And so I called him back later and he said, you know, I'm thinking about how I was the wolf when I was young. And he's had a, a livestock producer who's lost almost more livestock maybe than most uh, producers in Oregon to wolves, but really, it was really catching him was not the the story of the biological wolf, but like his own story. And he started talking about sort of violence that women in his family had experienced, processing almost in a sort of therapy like way with me on the phone. And I think that is a sort of that is a theme right now of people sharing stories of, especially women. Maybe there's this whole gray area of incidents where you don't know if you're technically at risk. I think that is one of the things that I became interested in is, you know, uh, there are these encounters where you know your life is in danger, but there are other encounters like this one where I had, where I was grabbed on the street, where somebody else intervened and you don't really know where it would have gone if there hadn't been that intervention. And so I didn't know how to narrate it. I didn't totally trust my fear. There were reasons why I felt bad for the man. Um, he was inebriated. He was sort of crying as he was kind of attacking me. And, you know, uh, those I didn't have a language for that. And I think those are the moments that other people are also sort of saying, I have all these moments too that are kind of like this. And, you know, early on, I'd had a sort of advisor say, well, this moment in the book, um, in early draft is sort of a normal assault. I've thought about those two words together quite a lot since then and the ways that um, what becomes normal, what becomes normalized, what sorts of violence become normalized. And um, so, yeah, it's quite interesting to hear. I was troubled by that, of course, and wanted to sort of be able to shine a light on these more quotidian moments of violence or unrest or unsafety that maybe we feel or internalize and carry with us. And so, yeah, a number of people sharing those with me, which I think, you know, uh, is a, is a gift that it's giving them space to think it through. And also, you know, it makes, there's a sadness, um, to understanding how many people, um, move through the world with this sort of awareness. Yeah. We're coming toward the end of our time. And I think listeners are, are taking this in all different directions. We're going to have, uh, we have a number of really juicy, um, you know, items to put in our show notes, links, to, uh, links to Eric, some, some excerpts from Erica's book and some of her other, other writings and some stuff that Panu has and some things that I have even about just basic research about animal attacks. So there's a lot of directions to go with this and we want to keep in touch, keep in touch, Erica, you kind of put yourself as a, as a cultural therapist here in your, in your book, <laughs> book readings here. Um, yeah, let's wrap it up, Panu, Erica. Where we want to go as we as we as we take away what, what messages we want to want to leave with the with the listeners. I think one thing that I've just thought about again is this idea that um, 
fear is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, and I go back to research I did with some ecology of fear biologists who sort of study these landscapes of fear and the sort of psychological topographies of fear. And I really started thinking about that in human contexts and, you know, um, this idea of moving through the world without fear, again, go back to maybe what brought me into this is also what brings me out of it, which is like the relationship between curiosity and inquiry and uncertainty and those things, you know, as a, the writing I do is grounded in not knowing and feeling somewhat provoked often. And that becomes a gateway to sort of something generative. And so I think the generative impulses behind this, and at the same time, I'm, I'm a much less actually fearful person after doing this work um, and thinking really deeply about these stories I'd inherited about wolves, both real and symbolic, and sort of the legacy and lineage around the, this predator, which is a code for something else. And so much of sort of the Western culture I'd inherited, um, I am less afraid. And so I guess I would encourage other people who might be in a similar spot of hypervigilance or whatever that I really felt like I was quite steeped in to think about that idea of sort of like unplugging the wiring and thinking about how did your parents teach you about fear? Um, what were the stories that you believed about what would happen to your body in the wilderness or who you would encounter there? And sort of that has been so generative for me and ultimately not um, a way of making my world smaller, but making it, it bigger. Thanks for that also. This has been a delightful conversation and leaves leaves many many images and words I'll keep think, thinking and musing ab about. One level would be a sort of Jungian approach of staying with the animal symbols or combinations of them as real others and partly unknown others and also also symbols and uh, I really look forward to thinking more about that when, when reading reading your book and I think this uh, idea of encountering our our wolf side both in light, light and shadow is is terribly important for contemporary times but most of all thanks for the great conversation thank you so much for having me here it's such a pleasure yes thank you so much Erica I look forward forward to, to more connection. And um, so, yes, uh, listeners, we have another episode with Susan Bodner, where she was talking about from New York City, her perspective on the outdoors, which will pair well with our conversation. And um, you can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com. And please support us at our Patreon. And um, all of us, you all and listeners, you all have a good rest of your day. Take care. Take care. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.